the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Unfortunately, Black History Month, rather than celebrating the achievements of black Americans, celebrating what uh, so many black Americans have overcome, as well as remembering and uh, discussing the uh, inhumane, barbaric practices in this country against black Americans, not just slavery and not just Jim Crow, but general uh, discrimination, marginalization. Like having a real uh, direct, honest conversation that's holistic in scope about uh, race in America. No, can't do that. Have to be focused on uh, racial equity, which is a synonym for outcome as it's employed by the cultural Marxists and Black Lives Matter and elsewhere. I tell you, equality of outcome becomes quite elusive. There was a good Wall Street Journal editorial on the topic. Just one example. New report from the New York Fed shows how a central bank focus on racial equity could make the problem worse, make the outcomes more disparate. The paper, Monetary Policy and Racial Inequality, looked at the asset portfolios of black and white Americans, models the impact of Fed rate cuts on wealth and labor market outcomes by race. If uh, you're only focused on the race gaps in the labor market, which is where the Biden administration is, then easy money is modestly egalitarian. The research finds black unemployment rate falls by two-tenths of a percentage point more than the white unemployment rate. Yet the effect on wealth is much larger as lower rates push investors into equity, seeing higher rates of return. The same shock, easy money, puts up, pushes up stock prices by as much as 5% and house prices by over 2% over a five-year period. Because of the racial gaps in asset ownership, this translates into a 20 to 30% annual income bump for white households compared to a 10% bump for black households. This is the dilemma. Rate cuts intended to boost earnings for workers on the margins of the labor market also spur higher asset prices and so increase the chasm between black and white. Oh, there's something else that's not contemplated by the research. The coming financial reckoning for profligate modern monetary theory is that when there is an economic downturn, those people on the lower rungs are going to be hit the hardest. When inflation comes, those people on the lower rungs are going to be hit the hardest. They spend a greater percentage of their disposable income, their household income, really, on uh, essentials than, say, do the, the, upper middle, uh, the upper middle income as well as the wealthier families in America. For more on all of this racial equity versus racial equality, how we went from the latter to the former, and the implications during Black History Month. Pleased to be joined again by our friend Will Riley, who is a professor of political science, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, historically black college, and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, Dan, thanks for uh, having me back on. Isn't it an interesting study coming from the New York Fed? It sort of speaks to this um, uh, 
perhaps fool's errand, uh, I'll describe it, as trying to affect equality of outcome, whether it's black versus white or any other group by a particular identity versus any other group by a particular identity. Yeah, I mean, I think this gets into the extreme difficulty of making the world perfect. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you know, banter, banter aside, we saw this with the COVID-19 vaccine, right? The original plan was to give it to seniors. And that seems extraordinarily obvious to me. And in fact, most states have quietly moved back toward that. I mean, the average age of a COVID victim is 81, 82. Um, but there was opposition because seniors tend to be a disproportionately white population. And the claim was that we should prioritize, quote unquote, essential workers who are a more diverse group, many uh, African-Americans, many Latinos, many recent immigrants. Um, and this was to be done in the service of equity. And a lot of people, including Bob Woodson from uh, 1776, pointed out that this would mean more dead black people, because it turns out that more than 11 percent of seniors are still African-American. So if old people had to wait longer to get the jab, there would unfortunately be more deaths. Whereas virtually none of the young, healthy, essential workers in retail or trade like construction, in all honesty, would die of COVID. So when we actually look at these attempts to kind of have the state step in and stabilize the workings of the world, very often what we find is that the world is complex. I, I listened to your intro and yeah, if you target, if you set policies designed to help low wage workers build capital or make just a little more, perhaps get jobs, those are also going to boost the value of assets like houses that wealthier people own. So, I mean, in reality, my default take almost is that the government should stay out of a lot of this, you know, enforce laws against actual racism and let the market work, let people compete. Uh, when we come back with uh, Professor Will Riley, I want to talk about uh, his piece at Spiked Online, uh, considering the premise from so much of our culture in this Black History Month and every month, frankly, when it comes to race relations is systemic racism exists in America. I'll be interested to hear uh, why Will Riley thinks that that is a conspiracy theory. More with uh, Will Riley when we return. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Will Riley. He's an associate professor of poli sci at Kentucky State University, historically a black college, and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And uh, Will, uh, your provocative new piece posted over at Spiked Online, you suggest uh, something that is taken in a, as a given in most of our elite cultural and certainly academic circles is, in fact, a conspiracy theory. Systemic racism is a conspiracy theory, you argue. I, in general, don't disagree with that. So a conspiracy theory in political science is a widely believed, influential set of false facts. And the idea of sort of sweeping systemic racism, which we hear about from Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, so on, is very bluntly the idea that any disparity in performance between large groups can really only be due to one of two things, either inferiority on the part of one of the groups or to some kind of significant discrimination, no matter how well hidden. That's the idea of systemic racism, that disparities themselves show potent discrimination. 
And what economists like Thomas Sowell and June O'Neill have pointed out is that there's a third option here, that groups that vary in terms of something as important or at least as notable as race or sex also vary in terms of a whole bunch of other things. This idea that a disparity between blacks and whites in police shootings or in police stops has to be due to racism has to be tested by looking at what the crime rate is for those groups, bluntly. The, the point about systemic racism is that just looking at differences between people and saying that there's some hidden force in our society, that some anger has survived since slavery or redlining survives on the margins or something like that, that's a testable theory. And when you test it, it's often wrong. Well, and the, the other often pointed out aspect of the systemic racism discussion is these systems that are systemically racist and these places uh, with systems that are systemically racist, whether it's police or other institutions, Who's in charge of them? So, you know, if you tell me that Chicago is a system is a city that is grappling with systemic racism, then you have to explain to me how 100 years of one party rule and and more recently uh, significant uh, time spans of African-Americans in positions of authority, elected officials and appointed officials in senior positions, how they're perpetuating a system of systemic racism. I mean, this was the point that Walter Williams was want to make. You know, there has been an explosion, uh, exponential increase in the number of black Americans who are uh, public office holders between, say, the 60s and the 21st century. And yet in so many of those uh, places where those individuals, black Americans are in public office, conditions have actually worsened for black Americans. So black Americans are perpetuating systemic racism against black Americans. That's a good way of phrasing it, but there are, there are a lot of tough questions here. I mean, an, an even more obvious one would be, why are so many of the people that are most successful in society not white, if you're looking at the systemic right. racism uh, paradigm? So, I mean, the highest earning income group in the country is Indian Americans. The uh, highest earning white income group is almost certainly Jews, who obviously have a history of prejudice. Asian Americans outperform whites, Nigerian Americans outperform whites. I'm not mocking whites here, but it's very hard to explain this if your claim is that something like the SAT math board is institutional prejudice, quote unquote, against minorities. Generally, the response to this from people on the woke side is just to redefine racism. The claim would be that the systemic racism is that African Americans are more likely to be poor in Chicago today and thus more likely to go to below-par schools because black people had to move to the north with very few possessions in the 30s and 40s because the south was racist during that era and so on down the line. So this is all one continuing system of racism. But to me, I mean, this is, this is redefining a word into meaningless. Racism is disliking people because of their race. The, the fact that we are more likely to be working class because of you know, lost race wars a hundred years ago to be only a little glib, that, that's not racism in any real sense of that term. We should help the poor, of course. Uh, I wanted to, uh, speaking of police, you mentioned one of those institutions, as did I. Um, this uh, new study that was published this week in Science, the journal Science, uh, co-authored uh, in part by uh, Dean Knox, is a uh, professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, looked at uh, 1.6 million enforcements by nearly 7,000 officers in the city of Chicago between the years 2012 and 2015. Over the course of 100 shifts, black officers made on average about 16 fewer stops and two fewer arrests uh, as compared to white officers in comparable scenarios. Uh, Professor Knox saying, we see two groups of officers going out and they're treating the same group of civilians differently. It's troubling. This disparity most pronounced in majority black neighborhoods, according to the researchers. And... Um, 
the suggestion is that, uh, of course, um, increasing the diversity of police forces like Chicago would uh, change the nature of uh, policing in a particular city and be more fair to minorities. Uh, now, again, this is 2012 to 2015. So the author suggests, you know, this doesn't contemplate uh, whatever reforms have been taken in the last uh, five years or so. But it seems to me there's some other infirmities with this study, starting from the, the premise that black, a, a uh, black officer, white officer, both stopping uh, a black civilian in uh, different parts of the city, all black civilians are the same just because they have race in common, that that stop that was made by a black officer is necessarily comparable to the stop that was made by a white officer. But I just wanted to get your general reaction to um, the uh, top line results of this study. Well, I think my reaction, first of all, is that I'd want to see what the effect on crime was. I mean, so it strikes me offhand, just off the top of the head, as at least a bit controversial to say that it's good for the police to make fewer stops and arrest fewer people. Mm. Um, you know, Chicago officers are paid pretty well. The question might be, well, what do the police do in that case? Um, I think that's, I think the result is an interesting one. I mean, obviously the argument that's going to be made is, well, black officers are more sensitive to the feelings and needs of the community. But I also think you would find that if black officers had made more stops, the headline would be coming from you know, that center-left academy today, look, black cops are more effective. So I, I do think black cops might have a more laid-back approach in black neighborhoods. My real question about whether that's good or bad would be, do more police stops correlate with less crime or with more crime if you're talking about petty stops? And until we know that, I don't really have, I don't have the definitive response to that piece. Well, let's hold it right there, and when we want to come back, I want to tackle the issue of... Uh communities and institutions that are supposedly suffering under systemic racism while being led by black Americans. More with Kentucky State poli-sci professor Will Riley right after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Will Riley, professor of poli sci at Kentucky State University. And before the break, we're talking about uh, claims of racism in large institutions, and I would add uh, big cities that uh, are substantially comprised of minorities, both in terms of population, in terms of percentage of the workforce, and also led by minorities and black Americans. So it's a little bit of sort of what uh, the, the, the woke do with respect to historic injustices. Everybody agrees were historic injustices, as opposed to what the reality on the ground is today. And they sort of like to conflate those two time periods, don't they? This is extraordinarily common. This actually is something I see a lot as a debater. If you bring up something like, well, for the past 40 years, you know, the most successful groups in the country have been Nigerians and Jews. I mean, the, the default response is very often something like, but remember Tulsa in 1921. 
And the reality is no one denies that the Tulsa race massacre was terrible or that slavery was bad or something like that. Right. But that's very often not relevant to what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is a series of technical, empirical questions like, are white and black officers patrolling the same neighborhoods if we're talking about a force that's half people of color? And very often the person with kind of the woke position doesn't really want to take it there. So I think, I think if you went across a series of cities and you looked at a series of officers, you'd find... A bunch of this kind of thing, a 10% advantage one way or a 20% advantage the other way. Uh, that's what Roland Fryer found when he looked at police brutality. He found that uh, Caucasians were about 20% more likely to be shot and killed. Black people were about 16% more likely to be, for example, beaten or unnecessarily handcuffed. And my take from that is it doesn't look like there's a pattern of brutality really against either race. It looks like you've got some brutal cops out there. But uh, nuance isn't really featured in our sort of public <laughs> shouting on cable news debate. <laughs> That's an understatement. And Roland Fryer, uh, the Harvard academic, is is, is black, and, and he, he talks about uh, the results of uh, his research that suggests, you know, I went into it uh, believing the opposite of what my research told me is true. So it's not like he was trying to, uh, uh, you know, f find a rationale for a preordained conclusion. It's quite the opposite. Uh, just a, a, a question sort of in terms of uh, assessing uh, the understanding I think most common sense people want uh, people to get along, people of different races and different everything to get along. So why is it that the the cultural Marxist Black Lives Matter crowd is and, and so many politicians as well, I guess, who, who more or less fit into that crowd? Why is it that they want America to be forever 1963 Selma? Because their money-making structure is based on 1963 Selma. I'll, I'll just openly say that. You're absolutely right. I mean, the percentage of marriages right now, they're interracial, is around 25%. But that general model, um, Southern Poverty Law Center, um, ACLU out there now, standing up for trans rights and women's athletics, that whole model depends on the idea that there is still discontinued abuse. And it's, it's hard to deny that. He is Will Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks as always for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. This is The Dan Proft Show.